My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? Thomas Malchow here from Train Fully. Welcome to the Train Fully podcast, where we dive deep into golf performance. Each episode, we meet with professionals, experts, and amateurs from all over the world to help you gain an edge in your game. To learn more about Train Fully and our innovative at-home program, go to trainfully.com. Use promo code GOLF10 for a 10% discount. In this episode, we meet with Colt Nost. In 2016, Colt led the PGA Tour in driving accuracy, and he was second in putts made within 10 feet. Colt shares some tips to help us improve our accuracy, and we go through his bag and learn the specs of his equipment. Now, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our podcast. And if you find that our podcast has been helpful to you, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. All right. So joining us today, Colt Nost, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, so growing up, you won basically everything there was to win, including the 2007 U.S. Amateur uh, can you talk a little bit about your decision to turn pro versus playing the Masters? Yeah, uh, pretty easy, honestly. I mean, looking back now, it's kind of something that's that's tough. But at the time, you know, if you look at it as a as a stock, or maybe as as for me as a stock, I was as high as I'm ever going to get. I was the number one am in the world. You know, I won that. I won the US Amateur. I won the Pub Links. You know, I went undefeated in the Walker Cup. I mean, I was just as good as it was going to get. And um, financially, I got offered some stuff that I didn't think I could turn down. Um, and at the time, it was kind of like, take it or leave it. We're not sure if you wait till April, if it's going to be around. And, you know, comes 2008, and the economy kind of went south. And so it turns out it was a good decision. But I also thought that I would play in many a Masters throughout my career, which I did not end up doing. But, you know, that's that's the one regret I would say I have um, in my in my golf career is not being able to play the Masters ever. But at the end of the day, I had to do what was best at the time. And I mean, that's the decision I made. I love the decision it, to have the confidence to just bet on yourself and to go forward. And that's one of the things that I respect about you a lot is, is you, is you made the decision to turn pro. How difficult was the jump from amateur to professional? Uh, you know, it was just, it was just different. I mean, cause you're, you know, in college, you're, you have your college coach that tells you, you know, where to go, when to go, what time to eat, what time to wake up. Um, and you're playing 12 times a year. If you throw the big amateur events in, you know, you might be playing 18, 19 times. Whereas professional golf, you're playing 25 to 30. You're on your own. No one's telling you what to do. You're your boss. Um, so that was the biggest adjustment. But I was fortunate. Like, I never had to go the mini tour route. Um, I was, I, I got my Corn Ferry card right out of, you know, out of Q school. Um, went out there, won a couple times, and was still playing sponsor exemptions on the PGA Tour at the same time. So I was fortunate that way. Um, but, and I, and I loved my first year on the corn Ferry tour. It was a great learning experience. I had some success and I thought it would lead to more success on the PGA tour. It just took me a little longer to get comfortable out there. What was qualifying school like? Uh, you know, it's, it's weird because I mean, as, as high as my stock was, you know, I still had to go through all three stages. I got exempt through the pre-qualifier, but I still had to go to first stage. I remember Dustin Johnson and myself got put out in Auburn, Alabama. I have no idea how we got put there. Um, both made it through. And then my second stage was outside of Dallas at a place I'd played a bunch of times and cruised through that. And that's probably the most nerve wracking stage. Cause if you don't make it through second stage, you have no status anywhere the next year. As long as you make it to that final stage, you're going to have some status, whether it be on corn Ferry if you play great, it was on the PJ tour. And 
I went to a course, um, PGA and uh, Orange County National um, down in Florida. That is just a bomber's paradise that did not set up well for me. I played, I played really good on Sunday to finish like 75th, which gave me pretty good corn fairy status um, and was able to go out there and take business. But I, it was one of those courses, sadly going in, I was like, I don't know if I have a chance to finish top 25 and get a tour card here, but you know, it all worked out in the end. Well, you're not known obviously as being a bomber. What, what was your average on tour? Yeah. I mean, I was a 275 to 285 kind of guy. I mean, I, I was now I top five or bottom five shortest guys out on, out on tour. Um, luckily for me, I hit it really, really straight, but there was a, you know, there was only a handful of golf courses that probably really, really set up well for me each year. Well, you were then what number one in driving accuracy and number two for putts within 10 feet for 2015 yeah. on tour. Yeah. Um, 2015, 2016 were my two really good years out there. And I mean, that's when you hit it, the distance I do, if you hit it crooked, you're going to be looking for a new job pretty soon. Um, <laughs> so, and it's one of those things like, yeah, you can go out, you can try different shafts, try, you know, different drivers, try different technique and pick up five yards here, maybe, maybe 10, if you get lucky. But for me, I knew what made me my money was my iron play and my putting. And that's what I needed to focus on. I mean, trying to get five more yards off the tee really doesn't do any, do anything. You know, I had a, um, a guy at Callaway golf named Dean Takel who kind of oversee the PGA tour. And I was one of those guys that was coming in the trailer all the time, looking for more distance, looking for more distance. He goes, all right, let's go. I'm like, what? And he's like, let's go out to the, I'm, I'm going to walk your practice round with you. So he walked nine holes with me at PJ national at the Honda classic. And I'd hit my tee shot. I'd go. And then he would walk up 10 yards. I'd play my ball and he would drop a ball 10 yards ahead. And we kept score on both balls. And my tee shot actually was lower than the one 10 yards ahead. He's like, this is what I'm trying to tell you is 10 yards doesn't matter. Like focus on what you're good at. Stop trying to chase distance every week and go make money the way you know how to. That's awesome. So I want to learn as much as I can from you. I know everybody listening wants to learn as much as we possibly can. Starting with your equipment. So let's go through your bag. What kind of putter do you use? So I've used the same one for probably six years now, even though I'm not playing, I'm still using it. I use an Odyssey. Uh, it's their number seven. It's the one with like the two fangs off the back, but it's got a Newport neck on it. So just, um, so not your traditional, I'd say mallet neck, more like kind of like the neck tiger uses on his putter is what I have in that mallet neck. Um, Johnny Thompson, who was the putter rep at Odyssey at the time, I was struggling with my putting a little bit and I've always been a great putter. And he brought it to me at colonial one year and said, I think you should try this. It was brand new. And I finished like, eighth and sixth and back-to-back -back weeks and said thank you all you a nice dinner this was a good switch and it's i think it's probably been out of my bag for a round here or there um over the last five years but for the most part it's been in there what do you think brian you like that putter that's a good putter nice balance that's uh definitely going to the mallet style i'm sure was was nice i actually use the old it's um it's called the works is the insert it's kind of a white hot with some grooves on it and they don't make it anymore which it really bothers me, but it's really soft. And I, I just, I've always loved that white hot insert that Odyssey has. I remember the works. And now that they brought back the OG line, the, the original white hot, I look forward to the works hopefully coming back too. Yes. Cause that was a great insert. Yes, it was. What about your wedges? Yeah. So I use whatever um, Callaway wedges are normally up to date. I believe right now that the Mac daddy force or what I have in play. Um, I'm, I'm Callaway all through the bag. Um, but I use that. I've, you know, I've spent time with Roger Cleveland working on different grinds and stuff that I like. Honestly, with him, he's so brilliant. It's like he kind of just goes out and watches you chip and says, this is the grind I think you need. And normally he's right. So, but, uh, you know, I'm pretty standard. I have pitching wedge, gap wedge, sand wedge, lob wedge. So basically I go everything off of distance. So my, my pitching wedge is 130. 
gap wedge 115, um, sand wedge 100, and lob wedge is 85. So I just do perfect 15-yard gaps. When you were running a full practice schedule and full schedule on tour, how often were you changing the wedges? Did you make it, you know, how many tournaments would you play with them? Yeah, my lob wedge, I switched probably every two months. So every eight weeks, um, I hate fresh groups. I don't want them to be perfectly fresh because I feel like I get a lot of those ones that come out low with a lot of spin, kind of feel like they stick to the face. And I didn't like that. So I always wanted to beat them up a little bit before I put them in play. Um, but yeah, the gap wedge and sand wedge, I mean, they could last all year, but the lob wedges, that's what I always start with every day. Obviously, if I'm practicing chipping, I go around and chip a lot with that. So it got worn out a lot faster, but normally probably about every two months, two to three months. And one of the things that I've heard you say is, is you're not really looking at the loft so much. You're looking at yeah, the distance, right? And then whatever the loft is, that's what it is. Is that what you would recommend like for the average guy to do as well? Totally. I mean, here's the deal. Like, you know, a lot of people say you're supposed to have four degree gaps in between all your clubs, right? Well, I mean, yes, it's going to be close to that. But if, if, you're, if your gap wedge goes 115 and then you go to your next four degrees and it goes 110, it kind of does you no good. So like the number or letter on the bottom of the club is kind of irrelevant. Like I'm, a, I think every guy on the PGA Tour is just trying to hit numbers. Like they don't want their eight iron to go 155 and their seven iron to go 160. I mean, they want it to be spread out perfectly, you know, whether it's 10, 10 yards, 15 yards, 12 yards, they want those gaps. So they very rarely have, you know, a half shot into a green or anything like that. So the numbers, I mean, yeah, they might match up perfectly on a loft live machine, but if they're not going the numbers you need them to go, there's not, there's nothing wrong with changing it. If your nine degree, if your nine iron is two degrees weaker than your eight iron, but it goes 12 yards shorter, that's fine. I actually did want to ask you is because I mean, you're, you're deadly accurate. Mm -hmm. If you're in between clubs, are you somebody that wants to like hit the longer iron softer or the, or the other way around? Like, how do you play that in between? You know, it, to me, it all depends on hole location. And I think that's one thing people at home would probably don't pay attention to. So like say a perfect eight iron for me is 155 and I've got 160. Well, if the pins in the back, obviously long is no good. I'm going to try to step on the, on the eight iron. But if the pin's up front and, you know, you got plenty of room behind it, I'm going to feather the seven in there because then, you know, if you, if you try to hit the eight iron hard and you happen to miss it a little bit and you come up short, that's no good. So here's the, I mean, on the PJ tour, most guys are great putters from 15 feet. So it doesn't matter which side of the hole you're on. Just give yourself a look at it. So right. it, for me, it all depends on the hole location. And like, I liked hitting the iron harder if the pin was on the left because it's good for me to try to draw it in there. If it's on the right, I try to work it the other way and take some off. Wow, that's cool. The strategy. What's the longest iron you have in your bag? A five iron. Five iron. So yeah, you use hybrid yeah, a lot. Four. So I have a four hybrid. That's probably in between. It's in between three and four iron because I carry four wedges. Um, that's a 205, 210 club for me that has been in my bag for a very, very long time. It's Callaway's, the, the first Apex hybrid they brought out, the little gray one um, that I just, I'm deadly with it. It's hilarious when I play with guys, I pull it out and they just all know it's going to be something good. Well, that's something that I think that a lot of people don't know and that I found out recently and, and I find it like absolutely amazing. One of the most amazing stats about you is, is it true that you have seven double eagles? That is 100% true. <laughs> so that, he doesn't bomb it off the tee, but he's got seven double eagles. And they're all with three wood or five wood. It's not like they're on like 480 par fives or anything like that. Um, I've always been deadly with a five wood. I mean, you, you've watched me play. If I, if I go out and play with Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth and those guys, every time I pull the plywood out, they're like, oh, gosh. Every time I play with 225, they're like, oh, this is not good for us. So 
it's just one of those things. I mean, from my distance, I've kind of always had to work hard at, hard with those clubs because I know on tour, I mean, you know, your average par four is 480. If you hit it 280, you got two, 200 in. If you hit it 260, you got 220 in. I always know that I'm going to have that 200 to 225 range a lot. And it's something I work on, um, or I did work on. I don't anymore. But it's something that I prided myself on, too, because I knew I could drive those guys nuts if I could hit it inside <laughs> their seven, six, seven, eight iron. I was going to say, it probably just like crush them a little bit. For sure. And that's why, I mean, people always ask me why I played Torrey Pines because it's 7,700 yards. And I had, I mean, I think I finished 15th and two years in a row there. And it's just one of those places that I, I don't mind hitting those clubs. And I know that you have to hit the fairway at Torrey Pines. It's going to be hard for me to win there, but I know I can go out and play solid and make a lot of points and a lot of money. And you have a three wood, obviously. What, what's that? Yeah. So I play uh, the, the Maverick. I haven't got the new Epic speed yet. I play the Maverick three wood, five wood. Um, my three woods, 14 degrees, my five woods, 18 degrees. Um, yeah. I mean, three wood, I probably hit off the ground into par four and I hit off the tee. My, my old coach, Randy Smith always told me if driver fits, I'm hitting it. I don't ever really lay back. And I actually just went to um, a 47 inch driver. I've played one round of golf with it. Um, I was out in Callaway and I tested their new Epic speed and 47 inch Fujikura speeder shaft. I think it's like 55 grams, but just changing the shaft, to which ended up being an inch and three quarters longer. I mean, it was 12 to 15 yards of carry consistently. Wow. Yeah. So really cool. You're I'm still... excited to play with it because I haven't spent any time with it on the golf course. Um, but it's one of those things. It's, it's really cool. And it didn't, at least when I was testing it, dispersion was pretty much the same. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I was wondering how your dispersion was whenever yeah. you were doing the fitting. And talking to those guys, it was like, you know, I'm kind of the perfect candidate for it because, you know, I swing it around 103, 104 miles an hour, which I mean, is nothing. And, I, I'm so, I hit it so straight. Like it's not going to be much difference for me. I mean, I picked up two, three miles an hour club head speed, a few miles an hour ball speed, but it was consistent 12. And then my good ones would be 15, 16 further in the air. It was, it was awesome. Nice. And you're like, uh, what, let's move on to your swing now, because you're, you're not like a numbers guy, right? You're more of a, a feel and rhythm type player. Yeah, I am. You know, I was, I never, the reason I wasn't a big numbers guy, as far as like track man and all that is I didn't really know that much about it. Um, towards the end of my career, I started working with a guy named Mark Blackburn, who works with Ches Reeve, Max Homa, um, in Birmingham, Alabama. And it's just a brilliant guy. And part of the reason I got hurt, I had two surgeries on my left hand is the way I swing the golf club. You know, I used to really release it. Um, didn't have any shaft lean, put a lot of stress on my left hand. And he really taught me how to swing the club. I would say better than I used to, as far as getting a square club face, using the rotation to, to square it up. But he taught me kind of the numbers that I'm looking for on TrackMan. So every once in a while, it's cool to see. Like, I like to hit just a little bit of push draw. So here, you know, like the, the face angle is a little more right than the path and stuff like that, which leads to a little push draw. And so I, nowadays, I know what that is. My biggest thing is I used to tend to slide out in front of it and dump it, which caused me to hit down on the driver, which loses a lot of distance. So that's really the only number I would really look at was my attack angle with the driver. I always wanted it to be positive. And you have that really unique, like a really soft lead elbow as well. Yeah. I think that's just part of being a bigger guy. Um, you know, I, I'm not the fittest dude in the world and I got a bigger chest and it's just one of those ones that I kind of turn, I have a big shoulder turn and the left arm just kind of collapses a little bit, but that's kind of, I mean, Steve Elkton always told me that's what made my swing successful is that's kind of my trigger. Once the elbow starts to bend a little bit, it's time to go the other direction. What about uh, reading greens? Yeah. So I get asked this question a lot. Um, I hate the green reading books. It drives me nuts because I think green reading is a skill and a very, very important skill. 
and I always thought I was one of the best in the world at, at reading greens. I mean, the longest caddy I ever had was three and a half years, uh, John Davenport. And you can ask him right now, how many greens he read for me in those three and a half years. And he'll say the same thing I will. And it's three. Um, and I tell everybody he's one, one, and one, uh, he, he got one, right, got one wrong. And we both were wrong on the other. So I call that one a tie, but I've just been a guy like only, I know how hard I'm going to hit every putt. Some putts I I'm going to try to hit firmer. Some putts I'm going to try to die. And I've always been a, just a huge feel putter. Like I just, I get, I hate the line on the ball and I hate the green reading books. I don't, I don't like either of those things. The line just takes too long. That's mostly the problem with that. But I get over everything. I, I plumb Bob, which a lot of people say doesn't work, but in my mind it works. And that's all that yeah, really matters. It seems to work for you. <laughs> yeah. And so I plumb Bob and say, so, you know, say the plumb Bob shows that it's a cup outright. So I start at a cup outright. I get over it. I feel it in my feet. If it's great, I go. If not, I move to wherever I think it does. I feel all the re all the break in my feet, which wow. I think a lot of people have lost. And I think that's kind of an old school thing. But if you feel that's why the line kind of confused me. So you put the line down at left edge and you get over it and you're like, wow, this feels terrible. But I think it is a left edge putt. If it feels terrible, how often are you going to hit a good putt? Probably not very often. So like in my mind, I have to be comfortable in everything. That way it frees everything up, lets the putter swing and you hit a good putt. I would rather hit a good putt comfortable than a really, than get over one, be uncomfortable and went ahead and hit it anyway and missed it. I'm fine if I miss it, as long as I was committed to everything I was trying to do. Right. And you hover the putter, right? Sometimes that was a little thing for a while when I was working with Gabriel Yedstead, um, who's a short game coach out on tour. I go back and forth. Um, that, that was just a thing to kind of, cause I think when you hover it, it really takes um, the takeaway really smooths out. You don't get that jerk. And like, I remember one year at the players championships, they baked the greens out so bad. Like the putter, there was no friction. So the putter wouldn't sit still. So it was just wobbling around. So like hovering, it actually helped a lot there. You know, you see guys like Ricky Fowler do that. What about uh, strategy for long putts? Man, I don't, I don't really have a, everybody asked that. I've always been a great lag putter. It's just one of those things. Like, I mean, it's just hand eye coordination that I think I was blessed with. You look at a, something, you know, 60 feet away and you just kind of look at it and you're like, all right, I need to hit it that hard. I mean, there's nothing. Um, I mean, obviously I think speed is the biggest thing in, in long putts. Um, yeah. You're trying to make them, but it's kind of like a bonus if it goes in, mostly you're just focused on the speed, but I mean, if you're playing catch with your with your buddy out in the backyard, you're not like, okay, he's 22 yards away, I'm going to throw it this hard, or hey, he's 28 yards away, I'm going to throw it this hard. It's right. just kind of a reaction thing, and that's one thing. You know, I've spent time with Charles Barkley with his whole yip swing and all that stuff, and I, I mean, golf's a sport. You're supposed to be athletic, and I told him, I said, when you were post, you were in the post, and you turned around to shoot a basket, you didn't say, okay, I'm 12 feet away, I'm going to shoot this hard, or you know, oh, I'm 14 feet away this time. I got to shoot harder. I go, what did you do? He goes, I looked at the target and I reacted. I'm like, that's exactly what we're trying to do in golf. I mean, I, whether the pin's 60 feet, 10 feet, four feet, I mean, I'm looking at the target and I'm just reacting to it. That was probably the best advice I got whenever I was in college by a coach was we literally went out on the range and he just started throwing the ball back and forth. It was not telling me why we were doing it. And he kept on moving like away from me or closer to me. And then at the end he goes, so did you even care about how far, how close I was? Like, no. He goes, then why are you worrying about that on the putting green? And He's then exactly after that, right. it's like, I was like, I stopped worrying about distance from that day on. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's a great thing, even with chipping. Um, I've seen a lot of guys talk about just, you know, like just pitching a ball out there and focus on where they're, where they're going to land it. I mean, there's so much stuff going on in that brain. The, the, the most you, if you can just turn it off and just focus on a spot and just get athletic, um, it, it tends to work. 
Did you get into little competi- mini competitions on the putting green, knowing you could take some of the guys there, I'm guessing? Oh, tons. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I remember one year at San Diego at Torrey Pines, we had a crazy fog delay. Like, the weather was fine. It was just You couldn't see 30 yards in front of you. So we just sat around for hours and hours. Practice facilities were open, and me and John Mallinger and Charlie Hoffman had an epic putting match that – I mean, there was probably 500 people circled around the putting green. There were fans watching us go at it. They were cheering. It was awesome. Um, yeah, I've had lots. I mean, that's just something you always do. I mean, we all, you, even Tuesday, Wednesday, that's kind of a competition thing. At the end of the day, if one of your buddies is around, you always go putt for some action. Is that something you miss a lot about the, the tour? Because I know like a lot of the ex-athletes, not just golfers, but any sport is, is the camaraderie and just being around the guys. Yeah, I tell – everyone i mean I've, I've been at it just over a year now um towards the end of my career like i just look i looked forward to tuesdays uh you know you i was a guy that i played all the golf courses i'm not going to be going around chipping and putting to all these different places i wanted a money game on tuesday with my buddies some trash talking and i would go up and down the range and just talk trash all day tuesday and we go out on the course and win or lose i was still talking but those days are just fun going out to dinner with the guys um even rain delay sitting around telling stories and stuff like that that's fun that's why I'm, I'm so lucky now that i'm starting to do some tv and stuff that i still get to go out there i still am inside the ropes and i mean to me it feels like nothing's changed except i'm not near stressed out because i know i don't have to go tee it up the next morning um but i'm still out there walking around the, the guys have been unbelievable i mean honestly borderline like i feel like they're too comfortable with me out there because they're wanting me to stay back and walk and talk with them when i'm trying to get away and just stay out and to tell everyone what's going on but it's been awesome well you've made an amazing transition because it, it's it's that job's hard i've never done it but i know just from even doing something like this how challenging that must be how difficult was the transition like was it hard for you or did it just come natural well i got very lucky when i was hurt that i got a call from cbs and ross malloy um this was a couple years ago i'll never forget i was laying in my hotel room in vegas um, I'm pretty sure I had a cast on my hand and um, no idea who this guy is. Leaves me a message. This is Ross Malloy from CBS. Would like to talk to you about some stuff, call him back. And they wanted to give me a couple tries on TV. They said, a lot of people think you'd be very good at this and see what happens. And they put me in the tower at first. I was in like 16 tower at Riviera. Um, I was 17 tower at John Deere one year. I did a couple here and there and it was fine, but it wasn't, I didn't think who I was or what I could do. And then last year at the PGA, I was with ESPN at Harding Park. And they decided to put me on the ground walking with groups. And I just, I immediately from the second they said, go, I felt comfortable. They loved it. Um, the producer was Mike McQuaid, who's a legend at ESPN. And he's like, this is a perfect fit for you. I mean, I, I just, as a player, I can talk about what I see, what I think I would do as a player, but also bring some humor to it at the same time, you know, and then that went really well. And then CBS gave me um, a lot of opportunities this year between CBS and golf channel. And I've done two so far this year and it's just, I, I, I feel, I feel like they can't, couldn't be happier with how it's gone. I mean, the compliments have been awesome and I just, I, I love it. I look forward every day to going out there and walking with those guys. And I can't wait till fans come back because to be in one of those last groups or one of those big groups and have all the energy is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I know from a golfer's purist standpoint, it actually has been fun for me to watch without the fans I know it probably isn't that much fun for the golfers out there who are used to having the fans, but from the sense of, you know, getting into the rough or not into the walking paths and everything and how much thicker the rough must be out there and everything. But the one thing that I noticed was a lot of the players that came out of whenever they got out of COVID 
was a lot of the players who maybe were not as used to the fans. How much of an advantage was that, say, for maybe the rookies on tour versus the yeah. veterans? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. And that's what one reason, you know, at the PJ Championship at Harding Park, I was big on Colin Morikawa going into the week just because he knew the golf course. I, I thought it set up perfectly for him. And trying to win that first major with all the outside noise that's normally going on is very, very difficult. But now you're basically just showing up and playing. I mean, it's like college golf. I mean, there's nobody out there. You know, there's a couple volunteers, maybe a couple coaches walking outside the ropes. But other than the camera, even now in college golf, though, there's cameras everywhere. We see we see college golf all over Golf Channel. Mm -hmm. But I think it was a huge help for the rookies because they haven't had to experience you know, 20,000 people around 16 at Waste Management Phoenix Open, you know, the crazy roars on the back nine at Augusta. Um, but that's part of it. And I think, I don't think anybody wants the fans to be away forever. I no. mean, maybe it was an, it's a nice break here and there, but I mean, that's, that's part of it. I just think it's so much fun. Even for me walking and reporting, like I have to be careful because there's no fan fan noise. There's no white noise. So I got to catch myself not being too loud and interrupting these guys. No, that makes, that makes sense. No, I mean, that was, cause that was one of the things I noticed. It's like, okay, this is kind of fun from a golf perspective of seeing guys without the fans. But that was one of the things I noticed was how the rookies were doing pretty well with, without that. And then how some of the veterans who are used to those fans kind of giving them that extra, I guess, oomph of adrenaline. Yeah. You heard uh, Rory McIlroy talk about it. He's like, I, I miss it. He goes, I just don't find myself getting near as excited for these rounds of golf as I normally do. And I mean, it's, it's so different. I mean, I, I'm, I tell you the one, I think the players championship at Sawgrass is just going to be told they're, they're going to have some fans, but it's not going to be like normal. I mean, someday you go around there on, um, you get to 17, there's over 20,000 people on that hillside around that hole. And everybody's like, Oh, I don't understand why people freak out about this hole. That green's huge. I'm like, yeah, point put 20,000 people around that place and know that you can, you know, cost yourself $200,000 if you soup one coming down the stretch. It's uh, it's a little different thing. So you mentioned that hole. So whatever you got on that hole and yeah, I mean, practice rounds, I bet you guys are dotting that pin all day long, but whenever you get up there with the crowds, I mean, how's that feeling for you? What, what, what was yeah. your experience? So, I mean, I was, I remember in 2016, I was tied for second um, going into that hole on Sunday and it was one of those right pins. It was a perfect wedge number for me. And, you know, I was, I think I was two or three back of Jason day. I had to have something crazy happen, but I, told myself I was going to go at it. Like it was a good number and all this. And like I said earlier, the mind is a very powerful thing. And I got to the top of my backswing and I said, there's no way you're hitting it over there. And I just kind of came over the top of it and pulled it into the middle of the green and was just so relieved that that shot was over because you've seen the nightmares that happened there. And I mean, I'm, I'm a guy that's done fine, but I haven't made a gazillion dollars. And if you soup one there and make double bogey and go from second to 10th, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a heck of a difference in, in paycheck there. So when people say they don't think about that stuff, they're crazy. I get it that Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, you know, Roy McIlroy don't think about that stuff, but the average guy does think about that stuff. Yeah. That's actually a big difference between there there's golfers who are quite good, say scratch or even plus golfers, but it's a whole different game when, when it's your livelihood and you're playing for your paycheck. Yeah, it, it is. And I mean, it's, it's not your money. <laughs> I mean, it's because it's not yours yet, but it's, you still know, like, if you miss a 10 footer on the last year, you always go look like if you finish eighth, you're like, Oh, if I would have made that, I would finish sixth, and it would have been $87,000 more. Like, golly, that'd have been nicer. You know, you make a bomb on the last you're like, Oh my God, that made me $50,000. Like that's, that's cool. I don't care who you are. You, you still, you always go and look. Yeah. 
What about the, uh, I want <clears throat> to talk a little bit about the injuries and what it, what it was like, because that was pretty serious what you went through. What was that like mentally to try to overcome that and the process of the recovery and the rehab? Yeah, it was just, it was so frustrating because I went through a point where my left thumb hurt so bad and it wasn't all the time. It was mostly, it would just be like once a day at the top of my backswing when the club would start to push kind of transition to put a little weight on my left thumb and I'd get, it, it would pinch and it would freak me out and I'd hit a crazy foul ball, like 60 yards offline. And I just never knew when it was coming, but I was playing so good that I didn't want to get it fixed. Well, for one, I also got misdiagnosed twice. Uh, all my pain was in my thumb. I had two MRIs. They told me nothing was wrong with my thumb. And I mean, if you can see on video, like normally you can, you know, touch your pinky to your thumb. I mean, I was like three inches from being able to touch it. Like it was that inflamed and that crazy. My club head speed just kept going down and down and down. So in 2016, I played great the entire year and I never practiced. I warmed up, played and was done. Uh, the doctor didn't allow me to. And then it got to the point where that fall, when we restarted back, I mean, I literally was swinging the golf club probably 98 miles an hour with the driver. I just couldn't hit it. And so I went in, saw a different doctor, um, and got things all cleaned up. And I ended up having two surgeries. I had one on my wrist because they told me nothing was wrong with my thumb. They said my wrist was junky and that's probably what caused it. And then I hit a shot in Dallas uh, a year after surgery on some very hard ground, felt something didn't feel right. And I couldn't grip the club the rest of the day. Had an MRI the next day and my UCL and my thumb was 90% torn. So uh -huh. um, had to have, I had surgery the next day on my thumb in Dallas where I used to live. So that was tough. I mean, having, you know, two surgeries that put you out nine months within, you know, two and a half years of each other was, was, was really, really, really tough. And I just, I just never got back to where I was. I mean, I definitely came back too early from the wrist surgery. Um, it was one of those ones I thought I was ready. And then the next one, I just, I mean, being out that long, it's just, it's tough. And the game changed a lot too. I mean, distance was important then, but now it's just insane how important distance is. Yeah, that was a, that's a huge transition from basically 2016 to now. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel about the way the game has changed? You know, I, I get it. Uh, you know, every sport changes. Every game um, evolves. I mean, you look at, I always use it, football used to be line up in the eye formation, run it straight ahead. I mean, ground and pound. Basketball was go inside, throw it to the big men. Now everybody's outside shooting threes. So every game changes. It's just, they lost control of this years ago. It ain't recent. I mean, they lost control of this thing probably when the Pro V1 came out. Um, and Jack Nicholas said that he was like, this thing's going to get out of control. And it, it just has, it's just unfortunate that I don't think driving accuracy matters at all anymore. And that's the one thing that's frustrating for like a guy like me who likes to work the ball and, and hit different shots and stuff like that. I mean, these guys literally do not care where the fairway is. As long as it stays in play, they're stepping up and hitting as hard as they can. And everybody made this big deal about wing foot, how it's going to you know, stop Bryson and all this. Well, they made the fairways 18 yards wide where no one could hit them. So now whoever's the furthest down in the rough is obviously going to have the advantage, but Bryson doesn't get near enough credit for how good he puts it. I mean, he's a top 10 putter on the PGA tour. All that gets talked about is his distance, but I just think it eliminates a lot of the guys. Like, I mean, you look back at like Justin Leonard, Corey Pavin, if those guys were coming out now, they have no chance. I mean, as great as they were, you Corey Pavin would be giving up a hundred yards to Bryson off the tee. And he, you can't compete with that. There's just, there's no way. Um, that's what's sad. Like, and like courses like Hilton head where like Bryson will never, I mean, he doesn't like playing there that much. I, I would imagine because he can't hit his driver all over the place, all the long guys, they don't like it because it takes driver out of the play. 
but I just, I feel like it takes a lot of the artistry out. If you look at all the young kids coming up out of college, there's no kid that hits it short and is, is dominating amateur college golf. It's just, it's, it's a fact nowadays that, I mean, all these teachers now are teaching these young kids. We're going to hit it as far as we can. We'll worry about hitting it straight later. What do you see out there on the tour ways outside of, yeah, I mean, aggressively making the fairway narrower, but like you said, that makes actually an advantage for the bomber because I mean, that's a pretty hard target to hit 18, 18 yards wide, yeah. regardless of how accurate you are. So what are some areas that you've seen maybe from tour player level of helping, helping kind of cater a little bit more towards leveling the field a little bit better? Cause I don't yeah. see equipment being the answer there. Cause you're going to run into lawsuits with the manufacturers. And that's the thing that I've seen. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, these manufacturers, first off, the PGA Tour is 0.0001% of the golfing world. And I get it, like, they're the ones everybody watches, but we don't want to make the game harder for the average guy at home. Like, it's already hard enough. But, yeah. I mean, it's all, of course, set up, in my opinion. Um, you, you go back to um, where they played the BMW last year outside of Chicago, uh, Olympia Fields. I believe John Rahm and Dustin Johnson were in a playoff at four under par, and it was simple. I mean, the, the golf course got crazy firm. The greens got really, really firm. And I get it. You can't get the greens firm every week because of Mother Nature. That's fine. But they had rough. They had trees. All these golf courses nowadays that are chopping down the trees, I do not understand. And it drives me nuts. Like, great. You mow down all these trees. There's nothing. They hit it 30 yards offline. They're in the rough. And they got a clear shot to the green. That makes zero sense to me. Like, what Oak, Oakmont's so hard, it's kind of doesn't really count. But I thought Oakmont was harder when it had all the trees because there's actually stuff that gets in the way. Um, but yeah, set up. I mean, these greens, you got to get them firm. If the greens are soft and the fairways are soft and somewhat wide, these guys are going to destroy the place from 200 yards. They all hit, they can hit seven iron and they control it. Like they control a wedge. I mean, you look at what Brooks Kepka did to Aaron Hills. He shot 17 under or whatever he is. And everybody's like, Oh my God, this place is 7,700 yards. It's going to be brutal. Yeah. But the fairways are 50 yards wide. Like you're not going to miss them. You go to Medina couple years ago in the playoff event and everybody's like how hard this place is going to be justin thomas shot 25 under par like it just doesn't matter unless you can get the golf ball to where it gets away from these guys you and you got to penalize them when they hit in the rough and then they, it's got to be able to get away from them when when they hit the ball into the green that's and that's the, the reason i asked that question is because i've read plenty of articles and i i i come from the looking at amateur guys that i teach and you know a lot of these guys are averaging, they, they think they average 280 off the tee, and then you put them on track, and in reality, it hits them in the face, and they're hitting a 230. And it's like, if you back everything back, you're talking about 200-yard drives on an amateur level. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where, I, but from the tour, the, the events I've seen, there's some of these shorter courses I've seen. I mean, granted, shorter course now is 6,900 yards, so that's still not short amateur level, but I've seen them still hold the pros down whenever they're firm. Yes. I mean, and, and that's what I've seen. 100%. I mean, you, you go back to the Aaron Hills example at the U.S. Open. I can't remember if he shot 17 or 18 under, whatever it was. The next week was Hartford, and it's 6,800 yards and 12 under par one. Like six shots difference, and it was 1,000 yards shorter. Like rough and firm greens is the way you can way you slow these guys down. When you make it where, okay, here's the deal. I can bomb driver up there in the rough and have no problem or I can lay back with, say, two iron off the tee, 70 yards shorter. If it if there's no advantage to hitting the fairway, these guys are going to send it every time. And they're just going to get it up there, and they're going to flick their wedge on the green, and they're going to make a mockery of the place. It's just how it is. I mean, 
don't get me wrong. What Bryson DeChambeau has done is incredible. Like he has transformed his body, the way he swings the golf club and has put in so much time. It's not like just he woke up one day and said, okay, tomorrow I'm going to start hitting at 360 in the air. Like this has been a process and he is, I mean, he has totally changed. He, no one's worked harder than he has. So I give him all the credit in the world. It's just, it's just, I think it's going to get out of hand at some point where these guys are going to, I mean, they're going to be hitting at 400 yards and then what the hell are you going to do? Yeah. It's kind of like, you don't want to punish like the guys work, like you said, so hard to get that advantage that he has now. And you don't really want to just like, okay, well now you can hit it so much further than everybody else. Let's take that away from you. Well, he spent two years working on that and get into that point. So it is something that, you know, he should get credit for, should have the advantage for. No doubt. I mean, I still think the part that's impressive with him is that he's kept the putting yeah. side of it. So not only is he gained the distance, because that's the part that you're right. You mentioned earlier, but it gets completely overshadowed of how good of a putter, how good a golfer he was before he started doing this. Yeah. Notice one thing where he struggles on the greens, though, is Augusta National. It's the only place on tour that doesn't have a green book. He oh. relies very heavily on that green book. The science part of him, yeah. That's why everybody was like, he's going to run away with the Masters. He's going to run away with the Masters. And I just, be careful. <laughs> what do you call it, a par 67? I mean, it is for him. There is. But you still got to putt it. And, I mean, it's, uh, it's a different world when you don't have that book to tell you what you're doing on every green. You don't like that book at all. I hate the book. It is absurd. <laughs> like, Ross, Ross Fisher put out a great tweet last week when they – announced that PGA of America is allowing the rangefinders at their major championship. He's like, okay, that's cool and all. How about you allow rangefinders, but you take away those greens books? Like it's a big deal. And people use it for more than just putting. They, they look at it, they can put the pin down and see where like the straight uphill putt is and stuff like that. And you know where the easiest putt on the green is. So it helps you with your iron shots as well. I just, like I said, green reading is a skill and anybody that says it's not has never played golf for a living. Um, and I would challenge anyone uh, to go out and read greens with me and see, you know, see the difference with, with a book or without a book. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. So the podcast has been awesome. This actually all got started. Um, Sirius XM gave me a show. God, I guess three years ago now, almost three years. I think April will be three years. Um, and me, I brought my buddy Drew Stoltz on who played college golf with me. He played at TCU. I played at SMU and after doing that for a little bit, we had golf.com reached out and offered us this podcast, which is called golf subpar. And it was kind of like, let's just see what happens. Let's see where it goes. Um, I knew I could get some big guests and all that. And we just wanted it to be something different. Like, you know, these guys, the top players in the world, they do have tons of interviews. They get asked a lot of the same questions. We just wanted to mix it up, be different. And it's gone so much better than we probably ever thought it would. I mean, we've had guests from, you know, John Rom, Gary Woodland, Charles Barkley, Johnny Manziel, um, Jeremy Roenick for hockey fans, Mike Commodore, who, I mean, has been, is by far the most entertaining episode I've ever been a part of. And What's my that? favorite, my favorite one, I mean, Kami is just a legend and I know all you hockey guys know who he is yeah, say, up, yeah. up there. Um, but it's been, it's been awesome. And we have a blast with it. We, we have released one episode a week. Um, every Tuesday it comes out today was Padraig Harrington. We got the European Ryder cup captain to sit down with us for an hour and 20 minutes and, he is one of the most interesting men I've ever been around. You know, I've played golf with him when I was on tour, talked to him, but to sit down with him and just hear how his mind works was, was fascinating to me. Very cool. Well, uh, Brian, you have anything else you want to ask? 
I think it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and and talk with you. And I hopefully we'll get a chance to kind of keep on going that way um, down the road too. Yeah, you you got it, guys. Love talking to y'all. That was fun. Oh man, I, I appreciate this so much. Like I said, I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time. The way you play the game, just your attitude too. You always just seem like a really nice dude. And to find out that that's true is awesome. So <laughs> well, thank, thank you for coming on, man. You got it. Thanks for having me, guys.